John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Lord, as we come this morning, as we read from your word, I pray that that you are stirring within us those uh, affections in our heart for you, that our our knowledge, our, our thinking about you would be focused during this time, that you would cause us to, to not be distracted. We'd be intentional in, in making ourselves and helping ourselves listen now to the preaching of your word. And that in this, that we would be, we would be men and women who are being changed, even this morning, according to your will, that you're shaping us by, by this word, by the preaching and teaching of your word to be the very people you would have us to be, to help us deal with the problems in our lives that need to be dealt with, to be bringing us to to worship you more fully, more truly this morning through all this. We pray that the preaching of your word would serve these purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, friends. Not too long ago this year, I read a biography of Abraham Lincoln. Um, Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer, President by Alan Guelzo. Uh, Very well written and, at least from my point of view, a very interesting book. Uh, It covers Lincoln's birth here in Kentucky, his childhood, um, his upbringing, his early exposure to Christianity in his life, uh, a Calvinistic baptism uh, or Baptist belief that he came to reject as a young man, and his ways as a young man, finding his way in the world, trying to get a business started to make money, his entry into local and then national politics, and of course his 
uh, election to the presidency and his leadership during the Civil War. Very interesting, though, about his intellectual and uh, the formation of his religious beliefs. Uh, much speculation as to whether Abraham Lincoln was a Christian. He had definitely rejected it. There may be signs that, especially during the, the, the crucible of the Civil War, uh, the way he spoke of religion, it could have been just political language, but there are some indications that perhaps his views were changing, but no, no definite ind indication that Abraham Lincoln never uh, came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Sadly, it would have been wonderful maybe, and maybe it still will be the possibility that we'll see him in heaven one day. But, uh, but good coverage of all these different uh, ages of his life, and so unlike the Gospels that we read, the Gospels are biographies of a peculiar sort, aren't they? You get a glimpse into his birth, the birth narratives, particularly in Matthew and Luke, and also Luke gives you a glimpse of his, when he was, what, about 12 years old, uh, but very little about his, his time as an infant or child, and in fact, most of Jesus' adult life we know very little about. We can only infer that he worked uh, in his father's carpentry shop. That would have been expected of him. Um, but really, these, these biographies, and really I think we do well to call them gospels because they're a particular kind or a subset of biography, but these gospels only cover about three and a half years of Jesus' life. Kind of a curious biography. But even more curious is that up to half of these Gospels cover only about a week of Jesus' life, his Passion Week, the week of the Passover in which he is, uh, in which the Jewish religious leaders connive with the assistance of Judas Iscariot to get him uh, brought in for a trial and after he has run through a series of sham trials, he's wrongly convicted and he's judicially murdered. Of course, followed by his triumphant resurrection and then uh, a little bit of information after that over the last 40 days on earth. But a, a very concentrated period of Jesus' life. And this is not an accident. The Gospels are telling us what is the most important thing about Jesus. The more, you know, the more time that they spend on a, on a subject, you know that's what's the important thing. And the important thing about Jesus is that he came to die for the sins of the world. He came to die for your sins and, and for my sins. And, and even in today's passage, as we're leading up to that final week, we are reminded a number of times, in various ways, subtle ways, that it's all about Jesus in obedience to his father and in cooperation with his father, going to Jerusalem to accomplish the work of atonement. And so the story is about Jesus and his atoning work. And yet, just like the Bible as a whole is God's story or Jesus' story, it's also our story. That's when I do a biblical theology of the Bible, I entitled it, God's Story, Our Story. Because we find our story in this larger story. And we can find ourselves in the story of the Gospels. God 
tells the story of Jesus largely through his interaction with people. That tells us about Jesus, but what we learn about these people, not only does it help drive the story, but it tells us important things about human nature. And in today's passage, I want to show not only how it's contributing to this story of Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem to accomplish his saving work, but it also tells stories about ourselves. And we may this morning see ourselves in these people in this section of the story. And so we look, I'm going to look at the three main characters of the story, or, or three of the main characters, uh, Mary, Martha, Judas, and then a group of people, Jesus' religious opponents. And the first one, person I want to look at is Mary. We read that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave him a dinner for him there, and Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Now, this is going to be very familiar to us. It's going to ring a bell from the story in, in Luke's gospel, chapter 10, where we encounter Jesus and Martha and Mary for the first time. Uh, I, I can assume that you're all familiar with it, but we're going to bring it up on the screen and look at it. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And we can be pretty sure it was Bethany. Uh, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left to serve me alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, a couple things to note about this. At first glance, it, 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 we see that, that Jesus, I think, in a kind manner, even in a caring manner, rebukes Martha. But he doesn't rebuke Martha for serving him. He didn't say, you should just stop what you're doing and do what your sister Mary is doing. He just says, you're concerned about too many things. And, and it's, it's distracted you from the most important thing. And Jesus rightly draws her attention to Mary's devotion to him. And he says, Mary is right to focus on me. And I will not... I will not dissuade her from doing that. But the point being is that there's no rebuke of Martha for serving him. And it's funny, so here in today's passage, he meets with Martha and Mary and, and their brother Lazarus, and there's Martha serving again. All right? Uh, the difference is, of course, she's not asking Jesus to get her uh, Mary off, off her bottom and, and get to work. It's just that that's how Martha related to Jesus. She wanted to serve him. And I think that, that, that shows us something very important and very good about Mary. Because her heart is revealed by simple, unnoticed service to the Lord. 
Invariably in popular teaching, you know, Mary is compared favorably with Martha. Although, or, and then sometimes we'll categorize people into Martha types and the Mary types. But I don't think that is, that is just the, the, the idea behind these stories at all. It's that Martha, actively, that was her way of expressing her love for Jesus. Just to do the humble tasks of preparing and serving a meal to the, to the Lord and those who were there collected for this dinner that was given in Jesus' honor. This is almost uh, also in Lazarus' honor. This comes right on the heels of Jesus uh, raising Lazarus from the dead, and I think they're probably celebrating that together. And many people had heard about it, and they're, you know, probably everybody in the village is welcome to join them. So it was no small matter. It's not like some little intimate dinner party. In fact, uh, it may be that they had, it was so many people that they had to have it at somebody else's house. Uh, in a moment, we're going to read a, 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 a parallel version of this story from Mark's gospel, where we're told that this happened at the house of Simon the leper, an odd place uh, to have a party given the status of lepers. You know, have to stay away from people. And let's go to some sick person's house that we can't even dare touch and have a party for Jesus there. A little odd, but uh, it just uh, it, it, one of two things. Either Simon the leper was wealthy enough to have a large place to have everybody, or it could be that actually Simon the leper was related to them and it was their house where Martha and Mary lived. We, we don't know. We can only speculate. But it's, uh, we're pretty sure, though, that it's really the same incident, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I point this out because in our church today, it is so, and, and, and I'm not talking about Providence, the, the church at large, but maybe sometimes here, it is just so easy to overlook the people who express their love for Jesus and their love for the body of Christ by simply serving without hardly ever getting adequate notice or attention or adequate thanksgiving. But how many churches would not be able to function apart from the faithful, regular, almost unprompted service of, let's say, Marys and Marians, men and women, although to a surprising large extent, women. It's women that hold churches together. I, I, I mean, I, I think we have lots of men and women who serve here at Providence, but I bet if we took a head count, I bet the women would come out higher than the number of men. And it's been true in just so many churches that I've been a part of. It's an aside, but it's an important thing to notice. It's, it's one of the beautiful things about uh, Jesus and women. They love him, and they will serve him. Oh, come on, I'm only five minutes into this, and I'm getting teary already. Sorry. <clears throat> I've got a man up here. All right. And so it's good to take time to thank all of the men and women who who serve in roles that are not very prominent publicly. You know, we preach, the elders teach and preach. Uh, you know, Troy and um, um, Stephanie and uh, today Keith were up here performing music, and it's very prominent, and, and we're grateful for their ministry. But how many people 
you know, just kind of back there at the table working, the soundboard, off with our children now, taking care of them, teaching them, and they don't, they don't ever nearly get the acknowledgement that they deserve. But it's interesting, although our attention will be called to Mary in this story, I'm sorry, yeah, to Mary, Martha is not forgotten in this story, and her service is not forgotten. And we can be sure that her service will be rewarded one day by the Lord Himself. A second face, then, uh, obviously, that we see uh, in our story is that of Mary. And she is a, she, her heart is re uh, revealed by service to the Lord in the face of misunderstanding. One thing that you do know if you are involved in ministry in any kind of prominent role is that how often you will come in for criticism. And I don't want to complain. It was, it was a wonderful privilege I had to serve as a senior pastor in a church for eight years up in Pennsylvania. And people all the time wanted to tell me what was wrong with what I was doing and how I ought to start doing it. Paul's laughing here. I mean, well-meaning, I, I, I don't think it's always mean-spirited, but, um, you know, they didn't, it was expository preaching was something new to them, and they thought maybe it was just like a little bit too in-depth for them. I introduced uh, a, a mixture of hymns and contemporary music. They'd, they'd been strictly hymns before. Yep, didn't like that. I, I used to like to end our service every Sunday with a prayer for the persecuted church. Didn't like that because we might be praying for somebody whose theology wasn't correct. Um, we had a time, it was, and actually, I just I didn't even introduce this. We had a time in the service where um, you know we would stop. You know, you've seen this in Baptist. Everyone stops and then shake hands with everybody around you. Now that wasn't even my invention here. And yes. People complained to me about this. I remember just one business meeting, someone was complaining about some change I didn't institute. And I just gave them a list of things that people had asked me to change and I didn't change. And the, you know, the, the person thought I didn't care because I didn't do what he said. I thought he, he didn't, I didn't do what he thought I should do. And I said, if I'd, it doesn't mean I don't care. It's just that there's just countless things that people want done their way. P things that people object to. Sometimes... Things that I, I would have to take to heart and think about. Sometimes I'm just thinking, you know what? You can't please everybody. Well, Mary is going to do something extravagant for Jesus, and it's going to come under criticism here. If you're, if those of you who would like to be a Mary as opposed to being a Martha, you're going to, you may come into the line of fire. Just pointing that out real quick. But that's not my main point here about her. But her heart is revealed in service to the Lord, and basically, it didn't matter to Mary what anyone else thought about it. This is a good time for us to go to the parallel version in Mark's gospel. Mark and Matthew both tell the story. But the details are different. And it's only when you start comparing them that you actually find out, hey, this is the same story. Uh, Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, 
a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whatever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Mary was single-focused on expressing her love for Jesus and giving him the best she had. And she didn't, it's obvious, I mean, she didn't ask anyone else's opinion about what she should do. She went ahead and did it, and she became, she was criticized for doing this extravagant thing. And there was some truth in the statement, right? 300 denarii. A denarius was about a workman's day's wage. 300 denarii is what a workman would have made in a year. Certainly a lot of good could have been done with a year's wages. Certainly there were poor who could have used that money. And only Jesus can say, yes, but I am worth it. Just like he would have, in the manner of speaking, he's, he's saying the same thing that he had said to Martha concerning her sister Mary. She has chosen the good thing, and I will not take it away from her. It's interesting, um, it just coincides that today... Uh, uh, Pete Vanderhoeven started his study on the things of this world and our attitude towards our possessions. And it's, it's, uh, it's, I've read half of that book. It's going to be a great study, I think. And I, uh, it was good to see a good turnout. And it's not too late to join it. Uh, not too late to, get a, too late to get a copy of the book of yourself and start reading it. But how do we relate to our possessions and to Jesus? I think the key is to start practice giving to Jesus and experience the joy of giving so that you can grow in that area. It was Mary's joy to give to Jesus. Because I think that the things of this world, and I don't want to kind of overtake Pete's study, but it's like, how do we choose? I think we should choose to do what our hearts desire, but that if we will step in faith and give to Jesus, we will find a joy that we can't find in any of the things of this world, and those other things will find their proper relationship in our lives. But Mary served Jesus 
without wondering what anyone else thought about it. And she was misunderstood for it. I'm not saying that we have to serve Jesus or that we ought to serve Jesus, just whatever way occurs to us. is best. This is what I think is best, and you can't tell me anything different. That's not the point at all. But, it, but, but Mary knew Jesus, and she knew that she had to give Jesus her best. And this, this very probably was the most precious thing that she gave it to him. And she just, quote-unquote, wasted it on her. But what a beautiful thing. And you can be sure, you know, that might have represented Mary's life savings. You know, you just couldn't go put your savings in the bank of Nazareth, you know, the credit union in Capernaum. No, you, you had to store it up in things of value, things that you could turn around and sell. That might have been her most precious thing, her savings. And she just pours it out on Jesus, trusting that God will provide all of her needs. Not very prudent, Mary. No, it's not, according to worldly standards. <coughs> Interestingly, in the Mark version of this story, the, this unnamed woman opens, breaks open this flask with the nard in it and anoints Jesus' head. In this version of the story, she pours this ointment on Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. Oh, that's a contradiction in the Scriptures. No, it doesn't. It's just in one version, it talks about the part where she did it on his head, and in this story, it talks about the part where she put it on his feet. There's, there's no reason that she couldn't have had done I'm, I'm sure there, there was like, it was like a pound's worth. So there was a lot of ointment in there. She probably could have covered him from head to toe for all we know with all that. It's not a contradiction, but yet each storyteller brings out a different aspect of the story. Now, it was common in that time that you would anoint men like priests and kings with oil, and you would pour the oil on their head, symbolic of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I think here that in, in that one story, it kind of highlights that Jesus is the true high priest, and the true king. Well, what would be the purpose of pouring on his feet? What does that symbolize? Just as, we, as you see in a, in a similar story where a woman comes and wipes Jesus' feet with her tears, we see that Mary is acknowledging her gratitude, her humility before her Savior and Lord for the work that he is about to do. And I think that she is, in a way, speaking better than she knew. She knew that Jesus was her Savior, that salvation and eternal life was going to be found in him. And the best that she can do to express this is to just worship at his feet and then humble herself, taking the glory of her head, her hair, and wiping feet, which... Is a, you know, it was customary, it was a very lowly duty to wash somebody's feet in that day and age because you, know, you had open-toed sandals and roads were filled with yucky stuff and your feet got yucky. And she's wiping, she's cleaning his feet with her hair and her most expensive perfume. And Jesus gives us the true insight 
to the meaning of this gesture. Now, just as we saw a couple weeks ago when Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks better than he knew by saying it was better for one man to die than for the whole people to perish. And, he's, and then we're just, John explains, and he prophesied what Jesus was about to do because Jesus died not only for Israel but for the whole world. So also here, Mary is acting better than she knows. Because Jesus interprets it for us. Jesus tells us that what she is doing is that she is anointing him for his death and burial. It was customary that after a person died that certain people would, in a sense, set themselves aside to prepare the body. They would, you know, wrap it up in spices. And it was entirely possible that sometimes a perfume would have been used for that purpose. And he's saying, this symbolizes the death I am going to experience. And she is demonstrating her appreciation of its immeasurable worth. A prophetic statement. And in the Mark version, we're told that the whole world, whenever they read that gospel, are going to remember what Mary did. May I also point out that they're also going to remember what Martha did. Martha served. She's part of the story too. She has her place in it. It was Mary's privilege to do the great gesture that's going to be remembered. But Martha will be remembered as well. The third heart that we see revealed in our story today is that of Judas Iscariot. It is a heart revealed by hypocritical piety and self-seeking. <coughs> In Mark's version, let's take a look at that real quick. In Mark's version, we read Judas Iscariot is not named as the one who criticizes Mary. It seems like a number of disciples did, but it may have been instigated, I think, by Judas Iscariot. And following the incident, we read Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So here we see that probably right from the moment where they're beginning to criticize Mary, it's Judas who's leading them on, whispering, oh my gosh, doesn't, doesn't Jesus see that, doesn't he appreciate how, how many people could have been helped by this, by this perfume had it just been sold and and the money given to the poor. And we see, so there's a, a hypocritical piety behind it. But also, it points out to us that he only cared about lining his own pockets. Because it says that he, used, he was the guy, come on Jesus, you, you, put G, you put Judas Iscariot in charge of the money bag? What kind of God doesn't understand what kind of person Judas is? But Jesus knew what kind of person Judas was, and he let him have the money bag. I'd say knowing that every once in a while Judas would put his hand in there and help himself. Perhaps he just did it once or twice, maybe furtively once in a while, but eventually as his heart becomes hardened, he decided that was money he could help himself to. And what a shame that I didn't have a bag with a year's wages that I could help myself to. And it's significant that we know that when Jesus allows Mary to waste this ointment on him, he turns around 
and goes to the priest and agrees to sell Jesus. His heart has been revealed. Jesus, showing Judas his trust, allows Judas's hearts to be hardened. And it will culminate during the Passover week when Satan once and for all enters his heart and he turns Jesus over to the religious leaders. Now, I don't think we have any Judas Iscariots in this room. I pray that we don't, but I'm, I, 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 don't, I don't put Judas Iscariot out as an example for any one of you. Uh, and if you see yourself in Judas, I think we need to talk after the service. But we are not immune from these same influences in Judas's heart. Hypocritical piety and self-seeking. There's, there's a little of Judas in all of us in that we all want to appear better than we are in church. It's, 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 it's funny. Sometimes you have to. You know, I just remember during my years as a pastor, Sunday morning, bickering with my wife, driving the church mad, getting the church... Hey, Brother David, how are you doing? <laughs> like, like nothing was wrong in my life. I don't want people to know that I've just been bickering with my wife that morning over probably something stupid in which I was at fault. But all of us want to, to appear to be better than we are. And interestingly, sometimes it's when we're in a church long enough that people start getting to know us and know that we're not perfect, that we begin to feel uncomfortable with our churches. I've seen that happen a number of times. It's amazing that once our natures become exposed, we want to hide. And it's how often that will actually end up with someone leaving and ending up going to another church. Hypocritical piety. Sometimes that's just natural. It's almost forgivable because it's, it's laughable, because it's just so universal. I, I would doubt if there was anyone here who was absolutely immune to that. But sometimes people begin to put on airs on a regular basis as being better than they are. It's the kind of hip hypocrisy that the Bible does condemn in Christians. And self-seeking. We aspire to positions. Maybe we aspire to certain benefits that come from ministry. I've used this example before, so forgive me if those of you have heard it, but I, I always think of the, something like this. I think of the example of Jim and Tammy Baker and the PTL scandals of the 80s. Most, a lot of us here are old enough to remember that, but uh, just really quickly, um, Jim and Tammy Baker had started a television ministry that grew to immense popularity. Uh, raking in millions of dollars, not only for the legitimate expenses of the ministries, but also to build these extravagant kinds of ministry, but also to enrich themselves. They, were, they lived lavish lifestyles. I think the one thing that sticks out to me is that Tammy's dog had an air-conditioned doghouse. That's, that's pretty lavish, I think. And dog lovers out there think, well, what's wrong with that? Well, 
But the thing about that is not to be just critical of their, of their um, lining their own pockets and, and using the gospel to enrich themselves. Is that I remember when reading about the story of how they started a ministry, they'd gone to some little podunk Bible college, and then after they graduated, they started their ministry by doing puppet shows for children and to, to tell the gospel story to children. Now, folks, nobody sets out to enrich themselves by doing puppet shows for children. I don't think that would, would occur to anybody. And I'm sure it didn't occur to Jim and Tammy Baker. They started off with the best of intentions. I, I believe that. They may have had some bad theology that have contributed along the way, but also they had hearts that they failed to guard against avarice. They began to see what they could have. It's like, it's like Eve. She saw that the fruit was desirous to make one wise and delightful to the senses, uh, and then she took an aid of it. And they saw the things that this ministry, could, as, it, as it took off and became prosperous, they saw the things that they could have from it, and they took and they ate, figuratively speaking. And they began to believe that, yes, we've earned this. This is God's blessing. You know, just like any other person who heads up a, a business or a corporation, and they're well compensated for their work, so we deserve the same thing. You can just imagine how they justified that in their minds. Now, I don't know where they were ultimately spiritually. Uh, Tammy Baker has gone on to meet her maker. Jim Baker did time in prison, and now he's involved in another television ministry. I don't think it's quite the same size as the old PTL ministry was. But um, I, I pray that he was truly repentant. I, I pray that he's not the same kind of televangelist that he used to be. I don't know. I don't, don't watch him. But were they Judases? Or were they Christians who were not careful, who discredited their own ministry and brought discredit on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because of hypocritical piety and self-seeking? Now, I've never seen anything closer, remotely like that here at Providence Community Church. But we're not immune to hypocritical piety and self-seeking, even in a little ministry like this. That's why we don't pay Paul very much. We just keep him humble. And finally, we see hearts revealed by religious opposition to Jesus Christ. If in the case of Judas Iscariot, we see a poisonous heart at work inside the church, here we see poisonous hearts at work outside the church. It's interesting that the two great dangers, the two great threats to individual Christians and to the church are problems within the church, seduction, and problems from outside the church, persecution. You can practically sum up the storyline of the book of Revelation along those two lines, the church corrupted within and the church attacked from without. Judas was on the inside. These men are on the outside of Jesus' circle. We, uh, we've been seeing this the entire gospel long. 
people are being drawn to Jesus and the religious leaders feel threatened. Their status and authority is threatened. They believe that Jesus is a danger to uh, the society in Israel, that they may come under attack from the Romans if he, if he is the kind of Messiah that's going to raise up an army to fight the Romans. They believe that they will lose control of rule in Jerusalem and lose control of their temple. I heard it once said that Jesus died because of job security. Well, that's a little crass and a little narrow, but there's a little bit of truth to that. Many men were threatened personally by Jesus' popularity and by his authority and by his unwillingness to kowtow to them. And it was expedient for them that he should die. And once again in verse 9, we see a large crowd of Jews learn that Jesus was there. They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in him. And in a matter of probably 24 hours, they're going to have just the tool they need in Judas Iscariot. Their hearts are revealed. These, we, we tend to think of these religious leaders as wicked. Because they're obviously wicked to us because of their opposition to Jesus. Because of their jealousy of Jesus. Because of their slandering of Jesus. But these men were highly regarded, highly admired. The Pharisees have a bad name. No, the Pharisees were admired for their piety. People wanted to emulate. Oh, if I could only be like you know, Joshua the Pharisee, my brother-in-law. But their hearts are revealed by their implacable opposition to Jesus Christ, culminating in the final decision that Jesus is going to have to be killed. We are going to have to get rid of him by whatever means we can. And yet, at the same time, we're going to have to do so in such a way that the people who are following after Jesus aren't going to turn on us. And they're going to have to navigate that very carefully in the week that is coming up in Jesus' life. And not to give away the end of the story, it looks like they found a way to do it and that they're going to win. But we know, of course, that they do not. Our story is in here. I don't think we can necessarily be plugged into any one of these categories. It's not like it's a personality test that I'm applying here this morning. But I'm awakening us to the fact that Jesus came to die for the sins of people like Mary and Martha, even Judas, in a sense, to die for their sins. I know that some people don't like that kind of language about Jesus dying for those who aren't saved. But I think it's proper to say that there's a sense in which he does die, even for the unsaved. That's my conviction on the matter. Um, 
and even for those who are in opposition to him, to the point that Jesus, even on the cross, could pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't think I'm a good, red-blooded Calvinist myself, believe in all five points, but I believe that we can say that. Jesus died for sinners. And he, as we saw earlier, Jesus proclaimed the gospel to sinners, including those who rejected him. Jesus is, but in doing so, when the gospel is proclaimed, when we encounter Jesus, we are not only encountering Jesus, we are encountering ourselves. How are we responding to Jesus? How do we respond to his sacrifice for us? Do we fully live our lives trusting in his work alone for our salvation? Or do we slip back into trying to save ourselves by other means and managing our own sins? Do we serve Jesus gladly and humbly at whatever he has given us to do? Or are we concerned about what other people think? Are we doing it to impress others? Do we think that we are currying favor with God? And by the way, no one's motives are ever pure. I want to proclaim the gospel this morning. I want that to be for your eternal good. The little part of Lester says, I sure hope they like that sermon this morning. <laughs> Just a little self-seeking, a little self-aggrandizing. Wow, that was really spiritual, Les. A little, a little hypocritical piety on my part. Sure. I pray to God I'm not in the fourth category, though, and neither are you. But when we read, when you read the story of Jesus and the people that he encounters, look for yourself in the story. Don't be afraid to see things that, about yourself that you may not like. Because remember, Jesus died. That all of those things, all of those impurities in our lives would be taken away and placed on him. So that when his father looks upon you and me, he just sees the beauty of Christ in us. I don't feel beautiful like Christ. Yep, that's what God sees. And one day, you will see Jesus face to face and you will be that beautiful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, we thank you for the irreplaceable work of Jesus Christ. We are undeserving. Even those of us whom Christ has redeemed through faith in him. Oh, Lord, we are so prone to wander. Lord, I fear it. Prone to leave the God I love. Help us not to be condemned this morning by the bad examples, but to be encouraged by the love that you have shown for us in Jesus Christ. May we respond with love in our own, love not only in words, but also in deed. That the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection becomes our story and a part of the story that we are telling with our lives. We give you thanks and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.